Hey family, so today's self-care journey video is based on a video that I watched earlier by Dr. Jeffrey Zeig. And so I took some notes while watching this as I learn and as I apply for my journey. And I wanted to share what I learned here for you as always. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Jeffrey Zeig, and then we'll jump in and get started. And before I do, I'm going to right now post the notes that I took into this chat, if you're watching live. And I'm going to actually pin that so that you can follow along. Either now you can follow along, you know, you could check it out later, <laughs> whatever you prefer. All right, so Dr. Jeff Zeig, he's a PhD and the founder and director of the Milton H. Erickson Foundation. Now, I just found out about Milton Erickson recently with the beginning of my studies of neuro-linguistic programming, as well as hypnosis and um, psychotherapy just in general. And so I found out about Erickson and I started to learn about his techniques and just how monumental he was um, and how he changed the game. He really changed the game as far as psychotherapy. And um, in finding out about him, I came across Dr. Jeff Zeig, who was an understudy uh, six years. He studied with him closely. He also authored and co-authored more than 20 books on psychotherapy uh, that appear in 12 foreign languages. He's the architect of the evolution of psychotherapy conferences, the brief, uh, brief therapy conferences, couple conferences, and international congr congresses on Ericksonian approaches to hypnosis and psychotherapy. And so I'm really appreciating him. Dr. Zag, if you see this video, just know I appreciate you. I wasn't trying to punch you. That was a fist bump. <laughs> I really, really appreciate you for your work. And honestly, um, I'm honored to have come across your material because when I found out about your story that you wanted to study with uh, Milton Erickson and when he declined, but he uh, allowed you to come and actually just hang out with him for six years, that was the best study, as you know, that you could have had. And so I just appreciate what you learned from him. So yeah, here we go. So this is a, a video where I was watching his video that's called Dealing with Anxiety. And so I took some notes to apply. And so I'm gonna go over them and share them here for what they're worth to you. Dealing with anxiety. All of us have it in some shape, form or fashion. And if you don't think you have it, it's probably because you're having an anxiety attack and don't know it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, it's something that happens to us regularly because of this thing here. And, you know, we're always dealing with it. We can never use enough information with how to deal with it and how to work with it. So Dr. Zayag talks about five components in order to help deal with them. So. Those five components are information, increasing the tension, awareness, 
having a safe place, action, and that's the five. <laughs> so starting with the first component, that's information, right? So let's talk about information. Fear versus anxiety. Fear is biological. And this is something that I talk about regularly and I can't talk about enough because I feel like we have a misunderstanding and therefore a misrepresentation of fear. A lot of us believe that fear is something that you should not experience, that you should not have, and that it's completely negative. And what we're really looking at and what we're talking about essentially is the debilitating aspects of what fear can do to us. We're looking at those aspects and because we don't want to experience those and because those are impeding, you know, to our processes and that kind of thing, we're against it. But it makes us look at fear unrealistically. Fear is biological. It's very natural. It's a natural response. I wouldn't be talking to you right now if it weren't for the fear factor <laughs> because our ancestors had to survive just like any species. And so fear is biological. It's a stimulation of chemicals to protect us by moving our body into action when it needs to. <laughs> Anxiety is manifested in the mind and at times is based on something that we have no need to be anxious about. You know, so... <clears throat> Fear is the thing that allows you to jump out of the way when a car is coming. Fear is the thing that allows, that allowed our ancestors when, uh, you know, there's some kind of big animal chasing us or at the foot of a cave or something like that, to be able to have the response to get away or to fight, you know, to, to fight or flight, you know. And so this is something that's very natural and that's normal. These responses are very normal. There are times when we have no need to fear um, and we can rationalize that so that we can do better with that. But it's a very natural response. Anxiety is something that's manifested in the mind and at times is based on something that we have no need to be anxious about. And that's, that's what we're really talking about here. We're really talking about the times when we don't need to be anxious or fearful that we're trying to get rid of and deal with and manage. High anxiety can decrease performance except in an overlearned task. I like this when this was mentioned in this uh, in this video because it made so much sense. It, it made me think about something that I've been talking about and thinking about for a long time. Again, fear is normal. And so when you think about anxiety, there are times doing sports or doing some other kind of high activity, you know, or high, um, what am I looking for? High energy activity where anxiety actually makes you take things to the next level and perform in a way that you've never performed before or do some mind over matter shit, you know, or just you know, just really push the odds or, 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 or succeed in the face of like crazy odds. I think about this as a musician, you know, and one of the things that was pointed out here is that high anxiety 
can increase your abilities during something where you have an overlearned task. So my piano isn't behind me right now, so I will show it to you, but at that piano, <laughs> I have an overlearned task. I've gotten to the point now where there's so much that I can do on a piano that when I go to perform, and I have noticed this myself, when I'm in situations where I may feel a little bit of anxiety, it actually allows me to overproduce. So it actually shifts and I don't even experience it as anxiety anymore. I experience it as like excitement, you know, or just a pure state of calm because of where I am now. But the conditions though are still the same. There's still anywhere from a dozen to hundreds of people that are that's watching me all at one time. And what I've learned is that I perform even better under those circumstances given my particular level of skill that I have an overlearned task. So I've noticed that, you know, a lot of the things that I practice will all come to mind at the same time. I'll have like just these these thoughts. My mind is just flowing with ideas. I'm on high alert. I recognize nuances at a much finer level. And that's because it's a it's a uh, situation that can produce more anxiety and I respond well in that particular field. So that's where it's beneficial. It decreases performance every other time. <laughs> in every other scenario, it decreases performance. It actually can hinder you. Um, it can make you, instead of being able to overexpress, it can make you clamor and it can make you draw in and be reluctant and not be able to perform. So there's levels to it. <laughs> there's levels to it. It is the state of being hyper-realistic. Anxiety, high anxiety is the state of being hyper-realistic, which like everything else in life, it has its pros and it has its cons. And that's the thing. That's why I say like we really oversimplify fear. We oversimplify it. Everything from scriptures that say God has not given us the spirit of fear and these kind of things to just like just fear is, is terrible. So one of our um, acronyms, which I think is cute, you know, when we use it at certain times, um, but the acronym, you know, that we use, for, that many people use for fear, you know, false evidence appearing as real, I think it is. And, you know, that's got a nice, clever kind of hooky feel to it. And it is useful during the times where you have unjustified fear. But that's just the thing. That's That can't be a blanket statement. That cannot be a blanket statement because it puts us, it puts the concept of fear totally into an unnatural way of thinking about it or unrealistic way of thinking about it. So false evidence appearing as real, I think it's great when you're actually dealing with false evidence, but there's times when you're not dealing with false evidence and you have reason to be fearful. So we just need to talk about it, I think, in, a, in more of a realistic context in that way, instead of oversimplifying. So being hyper-realistic, which is what happens when you're dealing with anxiety and what happens when I'm at the piano and all of a sudden I'm noticing every little thing in a positive way. I've, I've learned to channel that energy, which we'll talk about in a second, in a positive way. It has its pros, it has its cons. Being aware of triggers is one of the greatest keys to preventative maintenance with anxiety. 
being aware of triggers is one of the greatest keys to preventative maintenance with anxiety. And so we'll talk about these types of triggers that Dr. Jeff talked about. So the first trigger is temporal. When we're moving too quickly, when you're antsy, you're moving really quickly, your mind is overwhelmed. Moving too quickly or speeding things up. You can't think that way and it induces anxiety. I think about that all the time. That's why one of the things I hate above everything is, and there are very few things I hate in life, but one of the things I hate above everything is when I'm rushing, when, I, when I'm running late to something and when I have that sense of rushing, especially as an artist, as a musician, this is something that um, that Dr. Zayek talked a lot about when he talks about uh, psychotherapy. He talks about how it's related to other arts and how you can see it and how it transfers over. When I'm, you know, about to be creative and expressive as an, as an artist at a performance, especially if I'm going to an event, a gig, a performance, or what have you, and when I'm rushing, and it's usually, you know, I don't rush much. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good as far as organization and preparing. But every now and then I underestimate my time. Every now and then I underestimate the amount of sleep that I get right before the gig or what have you. And I wind up running where I'm gonna be on time for sure. And so I'm not gonna be late, but it's like, I'm not gonna have any time to just, after I set up, just relax myself, just rest my nerves, you know, and it induces a state of anxiety in me, even though I'm going to be on time and everything's going to be fine because I'm an accomplished musician and I turn mistakes into masterpieces, as, as my good friend Coco Lorraine Vera would say. You know, even though that's the case, I still have a sense of anxiety because of the fact I don't want to run straight from doing into creating. I want to have a time to decompress. And so when I don't have that, it's anxiety producing. So that's temporal, moving too quickly, speeding up. The, another aspect of that, which is a different, um, a different uh, avenue, but this is something else I've experienced, is ruminating over un, an unpredictable future. Ruminating over an unpredictable future. And I call that rehearsing outcomes. I, in fact, I'm going to call it negatively rehearsing outcomes. That's, that's going to be my term for it because... You know, there are times when rehearsing outcomes is is positive, you know, but there's a lot of times that I even found in my recent past where it's negative rehearsing outcomes, you know, and so ruminating over unpredictable future. You know, I'm a person that I'm a psychoanalyst, you know, even without a degree, like I'm always psychoanalyzing things in my own life and other people's lives. And when I think about my own life, you know, there's many times where I overanalyze things and it actually is a good thing. It's what helps me. It's what has helped me with entrepreneurship. It's what's helped me with marketing and branding and, um, you know, sustaining myself as an entrepreneur. Like it's actually being able to think of various hypotheticals and hypothetical outcomes and scenarios and rehearse them to the point of getting prepared for them for when they happen. It makes me respond to things better and all that kind of good stuff. 
The other side of the coin is that when it's something that you can't control and it's something that is already anxiety producing or it can be because it doesn't feel good or it's uncomfortable, it's your worst enemy. You know, it becomes overanalyzing um, to my own detriment. And so in my recent passes, I was just dealing with some just some um, uh, what do we call them? some inevitables with life. You know, and my circumstances and situation, I was rehearsing how things would go when I would interact with certain people who already knew how their energy would be or thinking about the fact that I didn't know what my next step was in certain areas in life. And I knew I had to figure it out at some point, but I wasn't allowing myself to have the time in the process. I was I was rehearsing the outcomes and I was rehearsing negative outcomes. I was rehearsing the times when things could go wrong and I was trying to I was trying to prepare for them. And but there's a there's a, a what we call it a, a thin line, you know, they're splitting hairs between when you're rehearsing something and it's positive and it's productive and when you cross the line of ruminating negatively. You know, so ruminating over unpredictable futures and outcomes is detrimental and it is anxiety producing so that's temporal next we have linguistic linguistic is another it's another avenue of kind of same thing what if it's the what if phase what if certain hypothetical scenarios happen what if what if this happens you know this particular video um he made in the midst of this pandemic so when you look at the title of the video it says uh dealing with anxiety and coronavirus and you know during this time of coronavirus and that's the case he you know directed it to that but of course as you can see all these are ideas that you can apply anywhere at any time in life so he was talking about the what if phase what if I catch coronavirus. What if this happens to my family? What if I don't have a job? Just what if, all these what ifs. The thing is, when you're rehearsing hypothetical scenarios and nothing has happened, you're not doing yourself a favor. Like if nothing has happened and you're rehearsing what ifs, it's just not good. There's a way of checking in so that you could be aware of the possibilities and then it can cross over the line of being overindulgence. Too much of anything is not enough I'm, I'm sorry is too much of anything is not healthy <laughs> everything in moderation you know so that's one what if the what if phase the second is generalizing i'm always this way things always go that way i always feel this way that's putting yourself in like an eternal feeling of that nature <laughs> even though like Again, it's not even the case yet. You know, if you say a generalized statement like I always I used to have a friend that was like that. If something happened to him for him, it would always happen to him. And that's the way he spoke there. That would mean that he would create times by just speaking that and putting himself in scenarios and his energy being that way that things would happen in there um, in that way for him. But then there was times when it wouldn't happen. And he still would have the same feelings as if he had that experience. So he would actually see the times where it didn't happen and somehow still mold and shape it into the fact that it did happen. Or even worse, disregard it altogether that like 
it just, this just didn't even happen at all. Um, they weren't counting toward the side of positivity. He was only looking for and reinforcing the negatives. This is a loop that happens a lot of times when we generalize due to even a previous anxious state or previous trauma. So linguistic. The next is perceptual. When you're overwhelmed by threats and negative possibilities, being hyper to manage, we need kind of an adaptive denial approach. I like when this was said, an adaptive denial approach. So it's like, I think about all this all the time. When you're driving, there's literally no barrier separating you from the cars that are on the other side of that yellow or white line. There's no barrier. It's just a white or yellow line. And we're coming at each other at high speeds. And so anything can happen at any time. If, if that possibility and that threat and that negative outcome was always at the forefront of your mind, you would never drive. None of us would ever drive. And so I would argue that the way we're able to be safe the majority of times in that kind of environment, in this grid that we call streets and highways, where there's nothing separating us but painted lines on the street, the reason why we have less accidents than more is the fact that we aren't out there just in this this perception, being overwhelmed by what could happen, being overwhelmed by the threat, the fear, the possibilities. That's how we actually manage ourselves and are able to be safe. And so we need this kind of adaptive denial <laughs> where we're not, we're aware, but it's, it's, we're just not focused on all these threats and how they could hurt us or harm us. To not see or be aware of all the negative threats and possibilities around us. When we have a person that is overly hyper in this way, what do we call them? Or what do we say they're dealing with? Schizophrenia. So, perception and perceptual is the next aspect. Emotional contagion, the hot potato effect of a person spreading their anxiety to others around them based on their behavior, their communication, and their influence. So that's another way, another thing that we have to look out for, that we can easily spread our anxiety to others, and we do regularly. Physiological. When, you know, and these are all types of triggers. The, the most important thing to look for are the triggers, because if you can nip the triggers in the bud, if you can be aware of them, then you can prevent your anxiety or anxiety attack from happening. So physiological, when we're lacking rest, proper diet and exercise, consuming high levels of intoxicants, etc. That's when we add to creating our own triggers. <laughs> You're going to be so easily triggered. You know, if you have not gotten proper rest, you're going to be so easily triggered if you're just not eating right. If you haven't eaten and you're hungry, you know, you become hangry, you know, you're easily triggered. So around self-care, this is why these old cliche things of getting proper rest, 
diet and exercise is just so important, even though it's pretty cliche at this point. The second tactic that was recommended was increasing the tension. So literally taking the anxiety and increasing it in order to decrease it. If you can increase tension, then you can decrease tension. And that makes so much sense. Because if you have the ability to manipulate it, even to increase it, then you can decrease it. I like this because there's a lot of courses, and this is a, another good tactic too, so this doesn't go against it. It just adds to the toolbox. The, the other method that I see, which is very common, is where we sit and we just do body scans to notice where attention is. And that's a very good technique, except for when you're not in a place of awareness to even notice something that would be so obvious, you know. And so it's because of the fact that you can't control your mind. This is another technique that I see that's very useful for being able to get your mind engaged and become aware of something. So if you didn't know that you had tension in your shoulders, you know, now I could invoke that by saying so you should relax your shoulders right now and then that lets you know like oh wow I didn't even realize my shoulders were tight because you your mind then focused on your shoulders you noticed they were tight or not and then you relax them you know but there's times when your mind is blocked from even doing that much because you just you just focused on something else so when that is the case this to me is gold because then what you do is you don't even wait to find the sensation. You go to your shoulders, you increase the tension. And then as you, as we see in this three-step process, you locate the tension in your body and then you tense it. You relax it, you take a deep breath and relax it and you discharge that. And then that's how you relax something that you didn't even know needed to be relaxed. So the first thing is locate the tension in your body. B, externalize it or actualize it. Imagine that it's an object outside of yourself. You can use any kind of mental object. Just imagine that that's where the tension is. So you're looking at it. This is a way of disassociating yourself. So that way you cannot be your pain. You cannot be your emotion. You can experience your emotion and experience yourself as going through that apart like you're apart from it it's two different things that allows you to get a like to quantify it so you can deal with it so actualize it imagine that it's an object outside of yourself and put all that tension into the object and observe that object and then next the tense relax discharge tent you tense your muscles or you know your face whatever it is <laughs> you tense it you count to three you take a deep breath and when you exhale you relax one thing that I realized in trying this is that for the most part I only have to really do this once in order to get my mind focused on an area that I think I'm focusing on but I'm not quite focusing on <laughs> you know because after that, after I tense, count to three, take a deep breath and relax, now my mind is directly there and now I can feel everything. I can feel the tension that was there before. 
I can feel the attention that I just added there and I can feel the relief that I just gave it. I'm way more present. So you might find that after doing that one time or maybe two or three times that after that, then you can just focus on relaxing and continuing to relax that aspect of your body. The next step in this five step process, the five component process is awareness. And we've been talking about that all along. So I'm gonna just go through that kind of quickly. The goal is to get out of your mind, out of your mind and into your senses, your sensory experience, auditory, visually, and physically. So being able to notice your surroundings and use the phrase, now I'm aware of, and then state whatever that is. Now I'm aware of my shoulders being tense. Now I'm aware of the music that's playing in the background that is Aaron Hill, Yellows of Spring, that you can grab anywhere where you already listen to music, Spotify, Apple Music, iTunes, Amazon, etc. Go ahead and add that to your playlist and enjoy it. <laughs> and we're back. <laughs> So, you know, you can say now I'm aware of, and then whatever that is, that's where you, you center yourself. You're aware, you make yourself aware of all of your experience, auditory, visually, as well as physical touch and experience. I'm sitting in the chair right now and I'm noticing my body parts touching the chair. I'm noticing my feet firmly rested on the floor. This is getting me out of my head of my experience and getting myself into just presence, my body, you know, and that kind of thing. The fourth component is after that, now you're finding a safe place. So you're relaxed, you're aware of your surroundings, now you're purposely finding a safe place. You wanna use memories or fantasies to increase your sensory experience. So it's either beautiful and safe memories that bring you a sense of peace or fantasizing about places that would give you that or that you would like to be or like to go that would give you that focus there and then you do the same thing then you notice and you create in your mind you create and notice the experience that we just had that awareness experience where you say now I'm aware of this and that you know so if I am you know vacationing to Bermuda that's a nice place for me to vacation I was in Bermuda in 2011 and it was one of the most amazing times of my life it was one of the like the safest most freeing places the first thing i'm imagining right now is that when i looked out of the plane before we landed all i saw was beautiful water from the top to to seemingly the bottom you know where i could see it was so clear and it was so beautiful and then seeing the white and the pink sand seeing all the vegetation, seeing all the grass and the trees and how everything was so vibrant because the water was so fresh and vibrant. Feeling those colors all the way through the island, seeing them in the, the houses of the people, the different pastel colors and how they all matched this beautiful tropical environment. Seeing even more sand and water being on the beach actually and having my feet in the sand and my hands in the sand going out on a boat 
and just being in the midst of all this beautiful water and this quiet and this peace and this serenity and not having anywhere to go or anything to do other than just to enjoy the experience. And so with all of that, I just took myself to a place even right now and in real time where it really did change everything for me. Because not only did I envision that experience, but then I started recreating and seeing that and speaking it. So I was going back through and feeling the exactly the states that I felt when I was there. So using that safe place to use memories or fantasies to increase your sensory experience is really important. From this safe place, you can think clearly, rationally, and you are ready to come up with an action plan. And that's the last step of this equation, the fifth and final component. Come up with an an action plan for yourself, for your family, associates, and others. Make commitments to self-care, healthy habits, first mentally, then put into action. You can't ride a bike by thinking about it. And the reason why I put that was that, you know, when it when it comes down to action plans, right? How are we gonna take care of ourselves from day to day? Whether it's taking 10 minutes to be able to just sit, take yourself to a safe place and just meditate, or whether it's making sure you wash your hands and don't touch your face in order to keep yourself, you know, and everybody else safe around you during this time. Whatever your action plan is, after going through these steps, you get to a place where you can actually make a solid and sound action plan and it's not in the midst of feeling and being anxious. It's very clear, it's very well thought out and felt out. And so therefore, it's a much better experience. So I really value going through this video. As you can see, I learned a whole lot in watching this video. It was only about maybe, I think it was 17 minutes long. Um, But more than anything, you know, my goal is always to learn to apply and then to share for what it's worth in order to help someone else with just my journey, my self-care journey. And so, yeah, that's it for today's self-care journey session. This was dealing with anxiety uh, from the video with Dr. Jeff Zaik. And so that's it. If you enjoyed this video, uh, the information is in the chat and in the description um, with all the notes that I took. So that way you can just go back and use it and save it for yourself. And yeah, just enjoy it. And if you'd like to help me to make more content like this, You can look for that information as well in the description and comment section. See y'all soon. Take care. (laughs) Self-care. And salud. Peace.